Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 262, Athelred and Athelflaed. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Angela, Tara, and Maris for signing up already. Hey, so the London meetup is just around the corner. It's only about a week away. And the last one of these had about 60 people who showed up. It was a lot of fun. And one of my favorite things about these meetups is that people make new friends at them. So if you can make it, you really should. I've set up a Facebook event page on our Facebook community. And if you could, please RSVP and let us know if you're coming. It'll help us determine how many tables we need to snag. And again... It's going to be taking place at the George Inn on Borough High Street at 2 p.m. on Sunday, December 10th. I hope to see you there. Oh, and also, it's that time of year again. So if you're struggling to find a gift for someone in your life, don't forget that we have gift memberships for sale at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And if you're a member, make sure to log into the site because you have a 10% off coupon. All right, on with the show. A year after Edward took the throne... In the year 901, while he was still fighting Athelwald's rebellion, something strange appears in the charters. This event doesn't get discussed in the Chronicle, but these charters reveal that in 901, there was an enormous gathering of important political figures in Wessex. It took place in Southampton, and the charters reveal that, with the exception of the Bishop of Worcester, all the bishops of Kent, Sussex, and Wessex were present. This council was also attended by Athelweird, who was Edward's younger brother, as well as Edward's two sons, Athelstan, his eldest son and the son of Egwin, and the infant Aelfweird, the newborn son of Edward's new wife, Aelflad. And accompanying Edward to this meeting was his household, his thanes, and other important figures from Winchester. And there's a lot of interesting things that are happening with this meeting, as is revealed in the witness lists, and one of them is that the infant Aelfweird, the child of Edward's new marriage, was listed above Athelstan, who was Edward's firstborn. And there it is. Aelfweird wasn't even walking yet, and already you can start to see the succession crisis brewing. And that's just on one piece of paper. Anyway, so Edward called all these people together, and it appears the plan was to set policy for New Minster because it was at this meeting that he endowed the new religious community with lands in Wiltshire and Hampshire. But that wasn't all that happened here. These charters also reveal three other striking aspects of this mysterious meeting. The first is a reference to the decimation of church properties under King Athelwolf, and that was Edward's grandfather. And keep in mind that these charters are actually endowments of new properties to the church. So by talking about the decimation that happened under his grandfather, Edward might have been trying to shore up support among the politically influential members of the clergy, because acknowledging his grandfather's land grabs while also giving land away suggests that these clergymen not only remembered the past, but they still resented it. And we might be seeing a sign that Edward was not only looking to rectify the seizures, but was also promising not to do the same thing. So we might be seeing some horse trading that was happening between the clergy and the secular authorities. The second thing that jumps out of these charters is the use of language. You see, these charters deliberately mix West Saxon terms, Mercian terms, and Winchester terms. 
And while all three regions speak the same language, the way they would formulate their charters could be quite different. But here in these charters, we're seeing all three styles appearing together. And when we look at how Edward is discussed within those charters, it starts to become clear why that mixing was occurring. You see, Edward wasn't just styled as the King of the West Saxons. Instead, in one of the charters, we see him being called Rex Saxonum, the King of the Saxons. And the other calls him Anglorum Saxonum Rex, the King of the Anglo-Saxons. The idea of a King of the Anglo-Saxons was a new concept. It was pioneered by Edward's father, Alfred. But here, within just one year of his ascension to the throne, we're seeing that Edward was looking to inherit not just the throne of Wessex, but also Alfred's claim to all of the Anglo-Saxons. East Anglia, Mercia, wherever there were Anglo-Saxons, Edward was king. Or at least he should be. And that's a bold claim, even in the best of times. But Edward made this claim while he was still fighting off a rival claimant to the throne, Athelwald. And that brings us to the third notable part of these charters, the witness lists. See, I told you who was attending these signings. Tons of clergy, Edward's sons, his household, that sort of thing. But did you notice who was missing? For someone who is trying to claim the title of King of the Anglo-Saxons, which would include dominion over Mercia, and for someone who is even going to the effort of including Mercian terms in these charters, it's kind of weird that Athelstan, Lord of Mercia, and Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia, weren't there to witness. And yet, when we look at this meeting, it seems pretty clear that they weren't there. And that's odd, especially since their ward, Athelstan Atheling, was there. Adding to the suspicious nature of their absence is the fact that the Mercian Bishop of Worcester was also missing in these lists of names. Furthermore, we know that Athelred was a powerful figure in Mercia during this period, and so was Athelflaed for that matter. In fact, on that same year, in another charter, we see Athelflaed and Athelred jointly granting land. Don't underestimate the importance of that. Athelflaed wasn't just out there witnessing things. By granting lands like this, it seems pretty clear that she and Athelred were acting as monarchs together. But meanwhile, her baby brother was holding large councils and not inviting them, even though he was out there calling himself the king of the Anglo-Saxons. So what was going on there? Was their absence routine, or is this a sign of a political split within the family, even during Athelwald's rebellion? Unfortunately, we don't know, partially because we're in an informational drought that's going to last for about seven years. From 902 to 909, our already sparse record gets even worse. And even with the help of the Mercian Register to supplement that material in the Chronicle, what has made it to our modern day would, would barely fill a pamphlet. But that's not because nothing was happening. In fact, I'm fairly certain that the reason the record goes silent is because a lot of things were happening. And those things might have been a little awkward for the ruling order. For those of you who are familiar with this era of history, this seven-year period of darkness in the record is part of why Edward the Elder's reign is often split into two halves. Historians often talk about the second half of Edward's reign as where he begins to exercise his ambitions for expansion. However, I can't help but wonder if that's a mistake. 
because we can't be certain that his posture and behavior changed in the second half of his reign. All we can really be certain of is that, starting in 909, we get a little bit more information on what he was up to. But, if we look at the charters, it certainly looks like Edward had his eye on expansion for quite some time. And, given their absence in the charters from 901, I wonder what the royal couple of Mercia thought about that. In the following year of 902, things get a little interesting for us, despite the trouble with the record. Now, it wasn't that year where Edward was able to finally put an end to Athelwald's rebellion, and understandably, that's what gets most of the attention in the record. However, a closer look at the record reveals a second event in 902 that was also extremely important. Elderman Athelred of Mercia, King Edward's brother-in-law and the guardian of his firstborn son, pretty much vanishes from the record in 902. And that wasn't just in the Chronicle either. Even in the Mercian Register, he all but disappears, only resurfacing nine years later when he dies. And we're not given any explanation for it. The Chronicle doesn't say why he suddenly vanishes. It also doesn't say how he died. So, where did Athelred go and what's going on with his health? Well, luckily, we're not wed entirely to the Chronicle. We have some other sources. We have other annals, as well as charters, archaeology, and other non-traditional records that can help flesh out this particularly dark spot of history. And our best clue for what was happening comes out of a source known to historians as the Fragmentary Annals of Ireland. In there, we find a story about what was going on in Ireland, Wales, and Mercia. Quote, Now the Norwegians left Ireland, as we said, and their leader was Ingemund, and they went then to the island of Britain. The son of Cadell, son of Rogery, was the king of the Britons at that time. The Britons assembled against them and gave them hard and strong battle, and they were driven by force out of the British territory. After that, Ingemund with his troops came to Athelflaed, queen of the Saxons, for her husband, Athelred, was sick at the time. Let no one reproach me, though, that I have related the death of Athelred above, because this was prior to Athelred's death, and it was of this very sickness that Athelred died. But I did not wish to leave unwritten what the Norwegians did after leaving Ireland. Now Ingemund was asking the queen for lands in which he would settle, and on which he would build barns and dwellings, for he was tired of war at that time. Athelflaed gave him lands near Chester, and he stayed there for a time. End quote. Alright, did he catch all of that? Now none of this is in the surviving Anglo-Saxon records, so we're going to take a little bit to unpack it, especially since the fragmentary annals of Ireland have a different flavor than we're used to, so you might have gotten a little bit lost. They include a lot of asides and things like that. So, we have the Northmen being pushed out of Dublin, and after they were pushed out, they attacked Wales. But they were defeated by the son of Cadell, son of Rogery. And that's a bit of a problem, because the son of Cadell, son of Rogery, was either Cledog or King Huiltha. And King Huiltha was a pretty famous figure in Welsh history, and it seems fairly clear that that is who the scribe was talking about. But if you're wondering why you haven't heard about King Huiltha, well, it's because he hasn't appeared in the record yet. He wasn't ruling at this period of time. In fact, he won't rule for another 40 years. And instead, the King of Gwyneth during this period was a son of Rogery. And it was a son of Rogery who you're already familiar with, Anarod ap Rogery. 
the same king who had earlier made a deal with the Northumbrians and later came under the umbrella of Alfred, that King Anarod. So that presents us with a bit of a problem, because the guy that the Annals are attributing this battle to isn't in power yet, and he won't be for quite some time. And matters like that have made dating this entry really difficult. However, historians, including T.M. Charles Edwards, have looked at this entry and compared it with the Welsh Annals and looked at place name evidence and other numismatic evidence, including the Curedale Horde. And they've come to the conclusion that the event in this entry occurred soon after 902, perhaps as early as late 902. It's also theorized that Huel Thaw was included in this entry because he was already a famous figure of the time. But the actual figure who organized the defenses of Wales against the Northumbrians was Huel's less famous uncle, King Anorod ap Rodri. So with that in mind, what do we think actually happened? Well, at around 902 or shortly thereafter, Ingemund, who was probably the same person as Ingmut in the Welsh Annals, was expelled from Dublin along with his fellow Northmen. They crossed the Irish Sea, and they seized some territory in Wales, probably North Wales, as Gwyneth was Anarod's base of operations. But shortly thereafter, the Welsh army was raised, and they fought fiercely, driving the invading army out of the region. Ingemund and his forces then traveled into Mercia, and probably because they were so battered from their previous wars, they decided to seek some sort of compromise, and agreed that if they could have a plot of land, then they would just live there in peace. And that is where Chester comes into it. As you might remember, Chester, which was the former Roman civitas of Deva, was where Haston brought his battered forces and attempted unsuccessfully to hold out throughout the winter. Well, following that event, it slowly got repopulated, but the reality was that it still was dangerously close to the Danes of Northumbria. And so, as you can imagine, this meant that the lands around Chester weren't exactly prime real estate. And so, confronted with this situation, Athelflaed decided that Ingemund and his bands would be given those lands, the lands near Chester. And this is backed up by archaeological finds. And based upon those finds, it looks like they are given lands to the north of Chester, which means that the Northmen were being placed nearer to the Northumbrians. And by granting this request to Ingemund, Mercia may have been trying to establish a buffer zone between themselves and Northumbria. But this is where we get to the really fun part, and the part that helps explain why Athelred, Lord of Mercia, quickly retreats into the background starting in 902. Because the Annals don't say that the Northmen were negotiating with Athelred. They were negotiating with Athelflaed, the Queen of the Saxons which is a curious title considering how Edward referred to her. Or rather, he didn't. And the annals also tell us why Athelflaed was doing the negotiating. Athelred was sick, and it was an illness that would ultimately claim his life. And this is why the timing of this entry is so crucial, because when precisely did Athelred fall ill, and how long did he linger? We know that people can be incapacitated by illness for long periods before finally succumbing. And if that was the case here, Athelred wouldn't be the first or the last leader to do so. The possibility that Athelred might have fallen ill, but still lived on for nearly a decade isn't out of the question. Furthermore, we see throughout history figures who are incapacitated and then recover for a brief period, only to regress back into illness later on. In fact, over a thousand years later, we still see that sort of thing happening with chronic and serious illnesses, even with our modern medicine. 
So, if Athelred had fallen ill with what would eventually claim his life, even if that's true, it's still an open question as to whether this meant that he was actually fully incapacitated for all the nine years that followed, or if it was just an intermittent thing. But, by the time that the Northmen came to Chester, Athelred was sick, and Athelflad was ruling, and at least the non-West Saxon sources were referring to her as queen. And that kind of makes you wonder what her baby brother felt about all this, considering that he was claiming to be king of all of the Anglo-Saxons. Well, in 903, we have another interesting development. Much like in 901, there was a gathering of major figures, and there was another group of charters. The bishops of Kent and Sussex were there, and this time, the Mercian nobility and the Mercian bishops were also present, as well as their leaders, Elderman Athelred, Lady Athelflad, and their daughter, Aelfwyn. But in an odd reversal from 901, as for the West Saxons, only King Edward came. The West Saxon bishops, which had played such a large role in that first group of charters, were absent. And that's weird. The reason they all got together was a bit weird as well. We're told that there was a fire and it destroyed some charters that belonged to Elderman Athelfrith, and that he asked that they be replaced. Now, to do that, they could either draw them up from memory, or they could just do all new charters. And the interesting thing here is that all of the surviving charters from this meeting were brand new ones laid out in identical terms. Historians Hyam and Hill point out that one charter like this is pretty believable, but to have three come out of the same meeting in this form, where they're not being drawn from memory, instead they're just being completely redrawn entirely, well then, it starts to look a bit more like conspiracy. Not that they're fake, I mean, they're clearly authentic, but rather that the circumstances in which they were created under might not be as innocent as the drafters imply. Much like in that first group of charters we talked about today, what we might be seeing is some political horse trading. If you wanted to transfer lands around to make deals, and do so in a way that tries to spare or at least redirect some of the hard feelings from the people who just lost their lands, creating new charters that claim to simply be codifying old lost charters certainly would be one way to do it. Anyway, so we have these charters that look a bit hinky, and they're granting a plot of land in Wessex, as well as two estates in the heart of Mercian territory. But it's in the witness lists where this gets much more interesting. Because Athelred was apparently well enough to witness the charters, but at the same time, he was accompanied by his wife and daughter on those same lists. And that's eye-catching. Not necessarily because Athelflad appeared in charters. That might be notable for most Anglo-Saxon ladies, but Athelflad had been appearing in them for over a decade, and we even see her granting lands. So her presence isn't all that much of a shock. Her daughter Elfwin's presence, on the other hand. Now that is surprising. And it's the sort of thing that you would expect to see for the heir to the throne. Another thing that makes these documents interesting is how they refer to Athelred and Athelflad. Unlike the Annals, these charters don't call them king and queen. Though, they do state that the couple, quote, held rulership and power over the race of the Mercians under the aforesaid king, end quote. That king being, of course, Edward. So we're seeing Edward exercising his position as overking. However, 
In this document, he doesn't refer to himself as Anglorum Saxonum Rex, even though he's been doing that in other charters from that same year. And in those other charters, he even draws a distinction between his grandfather, who was just the king of the West Saxons, and himself, the king of the Anglo-Saxons. But in these charters, not so much. And I bet you've already guessed what the difference is between the charters that refer to him just as king and the charters that refer to him as king of the Anglo-Saxons. Yep, it looks like he only calls himself the king of the Anglo-Saxons when his big sister and brother-in-law aren't around. So, putting all this together, what do we got? Well, Athelflaed appears to be operating in a larger role, and her daughter is also starting to move into the inner circle. And that might have to do with a progressing, but as of yet unidentified, illness that Athelred was suffering from. And while it's not clear what the relationship was like between Edward and Athelflaed, judging from the charters, it does look like he was doing what a lot of younger siblings do. He was strutting his stuff, provided, of course, that his big sister wasn't around to see him do it. So West Saxon and Mercian politics remain just as weird as they always are. But life moves on, and not everything was about subtle title bumps and land grants. That rebellion with Athelwald might be over, but he still left a pretty big mess in his wake. Specifically, he had dragged the East Anglians and the Northumbrians into the fight. And while Athelwald was now dead, that didn't mean that the war was over for the Danes of East Anglia and Northumbria. And this reality of the war that their cousin had brought upon them might explain why Athelflaed decided to give that group of Northmen some lands near Chester rather than opening another front in the war. Militarily, Mercia and Wessex might have been a bit tapped out. Unfortunately, we are now fully in that gap of the Chronicle, so we don't know exactly how the fight against the East Anglians and Northumbrians went after Athelwald died. But it doesn't look like it was going all that great, and it also seemed to have dragged on for a bit. And I'm wondering if at that same time there was also something going on with West Saxon politics, because the Chronicle tells us that in 906 or 907 at Hitchingford, quote, King Edward, from necessity, concluded a peace both with the army of East Anglia and of Northumbria, end quote. So we have peace now, but from necessity? That doesn't exactly sound triumphant. And the Danes in the north were rather powerful during this period. The great kingdom of Fortriu was ravaged by an army of Danes only a couple of years earlier. So perhaps the kingdoms south of the Humber were encountering the same degree of difficulty in their fight against the Scandinavians. And that's led some scholars to argue that the from necessity comment was the scribe's way of saying that this was going badly enough that Edward had to pay a Danegeld. And they didn't want to just come out and say that because it would make Edward look bad. And to be honest, I find that to be a rather convincing argument, considering that the Chronicle gets really tight-lipped during the period where we should be hearing about the war against the East Anglians and Northumbrians. The sudden silence is really suspicious. But on the other hand, the fragmentary annals might have an idea of what the necessity might have been from another angle. Because it's possible that the necessity was the fact that Mercia might have gotten embroiled in their own struggle. You see, remember those evicted and defeated Northmen who Athelflaed allowed to settle near Chester? Well, it had worked out pretty well for a while. Ingeman was content. For a while. But that didn't last. 
The annals tell us that Ingemann grew discontent with his territory. And after seeing how verdant the lands of Chester were, and how that city was much more wealthy than his own lands, he decided he wanted to seize it for himself. So Ingemann snuck out of his lands and traveled in secret to meet with the leaders of the Norse and Danes. Based upon numismatic evidence that we found in coin hoards from the region, it looks like the leaders he was speaking to were from Jorvik and the surrounding area. And we're told that at this meeting, he complained bitterly about the state of his lands and, quote, said that they were not well off unless they had good lands and that they all ought to go out and seize Chester and possess it with its wealth and lands, end quote. Bolstering his argument, he pointed out that a great many battles and wars had launched from Chester and that it would be an ideal base of operations. The Scandinavian leaders agreed and they joined his host as Ingemann returned home in 907. And their plan was perfect. Wessex was overstretched from its fight with East Anglia and Northumbria, and the dynastic instability wrought by Athelwald's failed rebellion couldn't have helped matters either. By conspiring with Northumbria, and by positioning themselves so close to Chester, they had a good chance of taking the city by surprise before anyone knew better. And in that circumstance, the Mercians might simply give up the lands willingly in order to maintain peace. And getting the lands without fighting was their ultimate goal. It was actually how he pitched the fight to his Norse and Danish allies in the first place. It was a good plan. There was just one small problem. They had all underestimated Athelflaed. Quote, Although they had held the council secretly, the queen learned of it. The queen then gathered a large army about her from the adjoining regions and filled the city of Chester with her troops, end quote. Now, Edward's chronicle ignores this year entirely, and the Mercian register doesn't do much better, merely adding a lackluster entry, 907, in this year, Chester was restored. But the annals give us so much more, and there we don't just read of a queen, we read of a queen with a network of spies and enough political and military clout to mobilize the Ferd and prepare for war. And looking at the archaeological record, as well as what little we get from the annals and elsewhere, it appears that Athelflaed's troops immediately set to work refounding Chester as a burr. The Roman walls were supplemented with additional wooden walls and patched wherever they were needed. And then they were manned with the Ferd of Mercia. The queen was ready. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.